The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, on this side of heaven, I dare say we're ever going to truly understand your love. And maybe even on the opposite side of heaven, we're not going to understand it. The fact that you sent your son to take on flesh, to die for us. Weary sinners, needy sinners, worthless sinners. Sinners that can never repay, can never give back what you have done for us. Sinners that Every single day we have to say we are unworthy and have been saved by grace and grace alone. Father, as we get to look at your love directly, as we're focusing in on one of those texts that has struck the hearts and minds of Christians, I'm sure since the moment it was written, Father, I pray that we would come to see your love in our lives ever deeper and that we would be overwhelmed by your glory. Just be with us now. In your name, amen. Well, I would, I would encourage you to turn to John 3. We're going to be in John 3.16 and finishing up this episode with Nicodemus. I want to start first by actually talking about a hymn that we sang. Phoebe, thank you for the song selections this week. Spot on. In 1917, a man by the name of Frederick Lehman lost everything through some difficult business ventures. He was a white-collar businessman, used to sitting in a corner office, and he lost it all. And he had to go work at a packing plant in Pasadena, California, packing oranges and lemons. It was not the ideal work environment that he wanted. But he was a Christian man. He was a writer. He was a writer of poems. And one Sunday evening, he went to his local church, and he heard a sermon on the love of God. And he woke up the next day still thrilled over the love of God still being on his mind and he went to work and he started to work out a hymn in his mind and it was very quickly throughout the day he worked on this hymn and and he put uh, words to his emotions and he came home that night and he went to his upright piano and he sat down and he started to craft the song the love of God I'm going to read for you the words again just so that you can hear them he said the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Wandering child is reconciled, but God's beloved son, the aching soul again made whole, the priceless pardon won. When ancient time shall pass away and and human thrones and kingdoms fall, when those who refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love is sure, shall still endure, are measureless and strong. Grace will resound the whole earth round, the saints and angels' song. That was the first two stanzas of this hymn. There's a problem. All good hymns come in three stanzas. Of course, that, that was what was thought at this time period. Like all good sermons have three points. All good hymns have three stanzas. But Lehman couldn't figure out what's the third stanza. He kept working on it saying, nothing else is coming. And then he remembered a note. A poem that was given to him. And he started looking for it and he found it. It was on a bookmark stuffed in some book somewhere. And on it was the third stanza. 
stanza that completed the hymn, and it said this, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and with the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. He stepped back, he put his pen down, he said, it's complete. But then he noticed a note on the bottom of that card that he had. And the note contained where this third stanza came from. He was handed this poem and said, you should need this. But here's what that note said about this poem. These words were found written on the cell wall of a prison some 200 years ago. It is not known why the prisoner was incarcerated. Neither is it known if the words were original or if he had heard them somewhere and decided to put them in the place where he would be reminded of the greatness of God's love. Whatever the circumstances. He wrote them on the wall of the prison cell and they sat there as he waited to die. Those are my words. In due time, he died and the man who had the job of repainting the wall were so impressed by the words that before they painted, before their paintbrushes obliterated them forever, one of the men jotted them down and thus they were preserved and ended up on that note in Lehman's office and in the song that we sung this morning. The third stanza came from a prison cell. Perspective changes everything. One person's trash is another person's treasure. One person's starting point is another's victory. One person's simple view is another that is complex. One person who sees, everything, who sees something every day and takes it for granted. The other, they're profoundly impacted by the sight. The phrase, the love of God, is one of those subjects that our perspective changes how you hear it and respond to that benediction on your life. The phrase, the love of God, or God is love, is thrown around on a whim. It's heralded and inspired so, it inspires many and is used often. And it's probably with good cause, the one of the most used phrase to describe God. God is love. Then there's the verse that it comes from. The verse that we get to look at today, the verse that is, as I said at the beginning of the service, the most famous verse of all the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The church and the unchurched know this verse. It is ubiquitous with the Christian message. God is love and he so loved us that he sent his son it's quoted often, and it's assumed by many. But there are some, actually, that when they hear it, when they hear about God's love, when they hear about what Christ did and what God did, they think to themselves, I am unlovable. I have done too much. I have rebelled too often. I, am, I have passed the point of no return. I cannot be loved any longer. We're still... Our functional theology, in our functional theology, we approach people with the idea that they are unlovable. We think that there are some who are, their sins are too detestable to be brought back, that they have gone too far, that they are past the point of love. But I want us to return, I want to return us to that jail cell with that anonymous prisoner. As he wrote those words on his cell wall, looking at them every day. Imagine what was going through that prisoner's mind when he wrote them there. As he considered what he did that landed him in jail. 
as he dealt with the guilt that was surrounding his life, as he was thinking about the pain every day, knowing that every day is going to be the same, sitting and waiting to die until it's his last day, waking up each morning with the hopelessness, knowing it's never getting better, knowing he's never getting out, knowing he will always be a prisoner, and yet he had the perspective on God's love that he could write the third stanza. That if the oceans filled, that if we could fill the oceans with ink, and if the skies of parchment made, if every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade to write the love of God above, it would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This prisoner was in, a pers- was in the right place to offer us the perspective of God's love that we need. So this is what we're going to see this morning. In John 3, 16 through 21, we're going to see that if we don't first see ourselves as a condemned sinner that we are, we are never going to appropriately comprehend the measureless love of God. With that, I want to read our section for us and then we'll jump into it. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This has been an interesting passage to study this week, and I've gotten the opportunity to study it a couple times in the past. And as one commentator has said, this might be the most distorted verse in the entire Bible. Distorted because there's a lot of different perspectives that surround this. A lot of people approach this text with different perspectives. But I would say that if we don't approach this text with the right perspective, we're going to misunderstand it. But I want to have a note about this passage even before we jump into the, you know, the content and details of it. Maybe in your Bible this passage is still in red. I have one of those red letter Bibles where Jesus' words are in red. Um, I, I have to say that those, that is a assumption, I want to say it's more than a guess, it's, it's the assumption on the, uh, on the um, translator's parts of what Jesus said and what the uh, gospel writer said. And this section actually, 316 through 21, while it's in red in my Bible, is considered by most of the commentators not to be Jesus' words. This isn't Jesus. John is not quoting Jesus verbatim like he would be quoting him in the rest of the section. Rather, there is a change of, of tone here and change of perspective. Instead of John quoting what Jesus said directly to Nicodemus, he's offering a description, an overview of what went down on the whole thing. And I offer that because that helped me better understand what's happening here. You know, think back. John 
is writing this gospel for a very clear point. He is writing it as John 20, 31. The thesis statement of the book says, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John wants to make abundantly clear, make sure that that his readers understand what Jesus is saying in this episode. And so before he closes this down, before we leave Nicodemus on this dark night, he wants to remind us and make sure that we hear what Nicodemus heard. And so I don't actually think these are Jesus' words verbatim in a quotation, uh, but they're still helpful nonetheless. Now, I say that and just to, I want to put some, some uh, details around that. These are, this is still the inspired word of God, even if it's John speaking and not Jesus speaking. God still inspired it. And, and here's why I want to just offer a few points of why the commentators think that this isn't Jesus speaking directly, but it's actually John. First, elsewhere in the gospel, John does this very thing. He offers a, he offers a scene and if you will, quotes Jesus and then he'll offer this description of what just went down. Again, the conversation between Jesus and and um, Nicodemus was very long. I mean, this, is, this was not a, you know, a seven-sentence conversation. You can imagine they're sitting down and, die and discussing these things. So this is John, like, adding the synopsis to it all. The other reason why they think this is a description is Jesus doesn't ever refer to God in the formal tone that's here in John 3.16 and following. This word here, for God so loved the world, there's there's a formality to it. When Jesus refers to the Father, there's an intimacy. He goes, this is my Father. So if Jesus were to say this, it probably would come out, my Father loved the world so much that he sent me. Which gets down to the third point. If Jesus actually said this, he'd be speaking in third person. Because there's times when he says, sending the Son, he would say, he sent me. I just add this just so that we can be clear of what's happening. And as I said, this demonstrates understanding that John is writing this. It helped me at least understand the focus of this passage. This is what Nicodemus heard when he walked away from Jesus. This is what John wants us to make sure that we hear when we walk away from this episode. So, getting back to the text. Last week, we ended with the imagery of the Son of Man being lifted up. Just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. And why was he lifted up? He was lifted up to become a curse for us, as Galatians 3 says. In the same way that that serpent that was in the wilderness that was causing the sin and death was lifted up. And you look to that object that was lifted up on that pole. In the same way, Christ came to earth to take on flesh to become our curse for us. So that when we look to him, we are saved. And this was offered in answer to Nicodemus' question, how am I able to be born again? How can I be saved? How can I enter and see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' answer is, look to Christ. But when Nicodemus heard this blessed truth, I'm sure he thought as a religious man, as he was, that's not enough. There needs to be more detail added to that. There needs to be more training. There there needs to be more religious practices surrounding it. Jesus, that can't be the complete gospel message. Look to Christ. Where are all of the other details? On top of that, Nicodemus would have been looking for qualifications to offer for this salvation. I mean, think about it. I'm sure this is what he's thinking. Surely Jesus did not really say that somebody can just look to Christ. It's it's an important important place to to, to set appropriate boundaries around such amazing invitations. You wouldn't want somebody to take advantage of that. Where are the other details? But that really is all Jesus said. Look 
to Christ. It's with these potential questions that John offers us the greatest insight into Jesus' glorious gospel. What is the gospel? It is the love of God being given for us. John 3.16 shows us the greatness of God's love reveal, and it is revealing the vast, unbounding, bottomless sea of that love. I think it's appropriate that John 3.16 has been singled out as the most quoted verse in the Bible has been, has been singled out as the best description of the gospel because it offers us the clearest explanation of God's love. You see, it simply doesn't say God is love, but it describes what God's love did for us. Look, it says, for God so loved the world. Now, if you just said that, you go, how? How did God love the world? Or let's, let's make this more personal. How did God love me? How? He gave his only son. You know, we can look back at the Old Testament and see all of the analogies that point to this. I just think of Abraham and Isaac. He gave his only son. The thing that Abraham and Sarah tried so hard for, were so disappointed in. Just think about the wait where they sat there for decades after decades saying, I do not have a child. And then God miraculously, well past Sarah's childbearing years, gave them a child. And then God looks to Abraham and says, go take that child, your only child. He's only got one of these. And go sacrifice him to me. And Abraham is going, okay, I'll trust that. But I've only got one of them, God. Think about the other analogy when the uh, angel goes over Egypt in the 10th plague. And who does he kill? The first born son and that blood on the doorpost is indicating what when God's only son firstborn son only son dies and takes on that penalty his blood is going to cover our sins so here God so loved us that he sent his only son to die for us you know there are all sorts of things that we hold tightly to on this earth Possessions and positions and dreams and experiences and physical objects and relationships and connections. And we all hold those things in tandem. But when life starts throwing us curveballs, when life gets tough, we quickly realize we can't hold everything as tightly. We can't hold uh, equally tight to everything. You see, when life gets tough, we start playing the this or that game. What am I willing to sacrifice? What's most important? And what is most important rises to the top. I mean, if, if it's either wealth or health, we're going to pick health. If it's to be rich and miserable or poor and happy, probably going to be happy. If it's to achieve your goals, but you can't share it with everyone, you're probably going to maybe adjust your goals and bring people with you. If you are going to keep everything for yourself, or are you going to help the next generation? When life gets tough, those things that we hold most important rise to the top. And as parents... Children always go to the top. As a parent, we, as, as, a, and we, as we look at our child who is flesh and blood, we want to fight for them to grow and to mature and to set out and to live a fulfilled life. We are going to do whatever it takes for them to have the best life that they can. But that's not how God operated. Instead of fighting for his son, God made the choice that none of us would make. God chose to love the worst sinners ever over the life of his son. How do I know that? 
because it says whoever. The one thing that shines from this section is it is very clear. Whoever believes can be saved. It's happened four times in the section. The first one happened last week in 15. It goes, whoever believes in 16, it says, whoever believes in 18, it says, whoever believes in 21, it says, whoever does what is true. Jesus points here is very clear. Whoever believes can be saved. You know, this goes back to the first point that Jesus made with Nicodemus. It's not about your family tree or your social status or the list of accomplishments. It's whoever believes will not perish. Our human categories of ranking don't determine when somebody is good enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not about what you do. It's about the fact that God sent his son for all. This was shocking to Nicodemus when he heard this. This is why John wants to make sure that we get this. Because in, in the religious mind, there's all of these categories you've got to measure up in order to get God's love. And it's this meritorious system of, I hope I don't commit the, 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 the unpardonable sin so that I cannot receive God's love. Rather, what God says is, no, whoever believes can have this love. Now, there is some theological distortion, theological debate that's surrounding this text. And probably, in your minds right now, you're having it with me silently. Ryan, it's not really whoever, right? And this verse, there has been a lot of debates around how to apply this. I'm not going to get into that um, uh, deeply because that's going to just honestly get us off course for what this text is talking about. But I want to highlight it. There's some of you right now that, that you could say, well, option for whoever, there's option number one, whoever means... Anyone. And by anyone, it's that Jesus offers to the salvation to anyone and they just have to take it. It's this universal salvation. It's this free will call that it's up to the person to believe. That Jesus really is saying, everyone, I want everyone to believe. Please, you have the offer. The second option, that you, way that you could translate this, is that God doesn't save everyone, only the elect. And it's a particular salvation. It's a free agency and because we need our eyes to be open to the truth of the gospel in order to accept it. But in this section, the point of the verse here is not to talk about the means of salvation. Rather, it describes the extent of salvation. I'm thinking of Revelation 7 at the end when we finally get to leave this difficult world. Here's what we're going to see. This is what John says in John 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne And to the Lamb. This was shocking to Nicodemus. And I want to say this is shocking to us as well. Because no matter your earthly standing, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, God saves from every corner of the earth. He saves the unworthy. Those people that we go, that they are beyond grace. He saves the broken. He saves the unlovely. He saves the weak. He saves the outcasts. He saves the prisoners. The people we view as unfit, they will enter the kingdom of heaven because of God's love. He saves the condemned. Why? Because God's love is indiscriminate and abounding to all. That is what 
John is emphasizing here, that's what the gospel is proclaiming to us, that's what Jesus is, is blowing Nicodemus' mind with, is that everyone can come to me, everyone can look to me, that my love is not held off from anyone. I'm going to say from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we will all experience this love. But there's a price to be paid in order to get this love. There's a price to be paid in order to get this love. And I know that, lang- that language might sound shocking to some. Because when you, when you hear price, you think obligation. When you hear price, you think work. When you hear price, you think something that you have to merit this love. But there is a price that you have to pay. And the price is the perspective that you have to have on yourself. The price is your reputation. The price is your freedom. The price is your name. See, the price of the gospel is admitting to yourself and to God who you truly are. And we struggle with that. We don't want to admit to ourselves, and we don't want to admit to God, though he already knows it, who we truly are. Richard Rohr says this, The great and merciful surprise is that we come to God not in doing it right, but in doing it wrong. We think in order to get to God that we have to hold it all together and lie to ourselves and to those around us and to God that we've done everything right and then he will accept us. But the great and merciful mystery and surprise is that we don't get to God by doing it right and holding it all together. We actually get to God by admitting that we haven't done it right and that we are a failure and that we are condemned. But this is extremely hard for us all because we are always trying to cover up our failures. We are always trying to hide who we truly are. We are always trying to keep ourselves out of the jail cell. Recently, there have been a lot of um, high-profile court cases in the media. I've spent some time listening to some of them. And we can watch for hours and hours as prosecutors and defense attorneys are going at each other, trying to prove that their side of the case is right. But here's what struck me about it all. We, all try, we try at all costs to prove that we are not guilty. That's the key in all of these. We try to prove that we are not guilty. No one likes to admit that they're wrong. Some of you maybe in this room have been sued, have been taken to court. And you know this feeling. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you receive that letter in the mail? I'm going to fight this and I'm going to win. Because we view the guilty verdict as a death sentence to our life and to our dreams. But here's how God works. In order for us to experience the love of God, we have to be condemned first. In order for us to understand the weight of that love, we have to place ourselves in that jail cell. And why does this condemnation must come first? Because God only offers his grace towards sinners who sees their sin. Look at 17 and 18. If, if you guys think I'm crazy, just, just look at this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Condemnation is at everyone's doorstep. But the only way to get out of condemnation is actually to admit that we are condemned. Those who don't believe that we're condemned are the ones who are condemned and those who believe that they are condemned aren't condemned. Do you guys keep up with that? It's countercultural to everything that we've ever experienced. Thinking of John 1, not John 1, 9. First John 1, 9. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to condemn us to hell. No. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I confess the unrighteousness, he cleanses me from the unrighteousness. But if I don't confess the unrighteousness, he condemns me because of the unrighteousness. And yet we spend our lives trying not to admit that we're unrighteous. The most shocking thing and the most offensive thing for, for some of us is to admit that we are unrighteous. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. You see, the love of God flips everything on its head. Life comes from admitting guilt. Death comes from fighting for a mistrial. Grace is found not by covering up who we are, but by embracing our guilt and looking to Christ. It's countercultural. We don't naturally think in these terms. We try to shove who we truly are, sinners, as deep as we can. And, and Jesus and John and God are saying here, you can't shove it deep enough. If you just admit who you are, you will receive my love. Look at this contrast that he offers in 19 to 20. This contrast between light and darkness, which we have to just recognize first that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night. So there's a little bit of a scene contrast here as well. Light and darkness. This is the judgment. We're all afraid of judgment. That's the problem. We're all running from the judgment that we know about ourselves. We're all trying to not have that judgment be guilty. But this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Keep me in the darkness because if I'm in the darkness, you can't see the dirt and the, and, and the sin on me and in me. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This contrast between light and darkness just shocks everyone. Because for us, exposure is the most frightening thing imaginable. Like, I, I know this is, I, I don't think this is how it's going to go down in heaven. But one of the things that in, the, um, in eschatology, in the end time sense that was always brought up, was that there's going to be a point in heaven when there's the screen and all of your sins are going to be played before God. And you're going to be judged by all of your sins. Maybe I was the only kid, but I heard that explanation. And I was scared to death. Because I'm like, huh? All the stuff I've been trying to hide from you and myself is going to be played publicly? I don't want that type of exposure. Because if, if I was that exposed, I would crumble and fall. But here, what God is saying is that that exposure is the only way that we get to see God's love. Because those who see the light and come towards it, those who have their sins exposed, those who admit that they're actually condemned as they are, receive the love of God. Or the other way to say it. If you're not willing to admit that you're guilty, you can't be pardoned. We so much want to keep ourselves in the guilt, in, in, the, in the guiltless category and in the innocent category that we never... We think if we are called guilty that there's no hope. Rather, God says, no, you have to be called guilty in order for me to pardon you of your sins, in order for me to save you from your sins. You see, this judgment causes us to focus attention on the darkest aspects of our life. 
That's really what we're hitting at here. I, I am trying to get your brain to go, does that mean I have to admit that thing that I do not want to admit about myself? But in doing so, in focusing on the darkest aspects of your life, it opens a door to a second, unexpected narrative that is full of hope and promise. Here's a poem for you. For you. I'm going to try to say this correctly. I've been working on this one. This is from Emily Dickinson. It's poem 816. A death blow is a life blow to some who till they died did not alive become. Who they have lived had died but when they died vitality began. It highlights that death is not the end. It highlights that death is only the beginning. So many of us run from admitting defeat because we think that death and admitting defeat is death to us. But what the gospel describes to us is when we admit that we have died and that we are guilty and that we are condemned is when God's love comes in and speaks to us and says, you are now alive in me. So I want to go back to the hymn that we started. I want to go back to that anonymous prisoner who's sitting in that jail cell. And I said that perspective changes everything. And I think that if we do not see ourselves as that prisoner sitting right next to him, just as hopeless as he is, we are never going to truly feel and understand the weight of God's love. That means for some of you, that means that you have to stop running from admitting who you are to yourself and to those around you. Because the starting point of all of this is that you quit running from the verdict that has already been applied to your life. God knows who you are. It's not a shock to him. He knows your sin deeper than you know your sin. So in that running from the love of God, the only thing you're running from is the verdict that he already knows. And, but what John 3.16 in this passage declares to us is that that verdict, when you come to him and go, I am a guilty sinner and I am in need of your love, what the other verdict is, is I love you and will offer that to you. I read this book several years back. It's by John Zoll. It's called Grace and Addiction. I can't recommend this book enough. Um, it's written about the gospel and AA. And it was recommended to me, uh, not necessarily because of any AA issues, but because of the description of the gospel as it relates to AA and being an alcoholic. It does a wonderful job of highlighting our collective need for salvation. And so whether you're an alcoholic or not, you are a sinner. And so all of us can walk in here and go, hi, I'm Ryan, and I'm a sinner. And it's been, hopefully, no time at all since the last time I admitted that. Because we all, whether alcoholic or not, are in need of redemption. And I want to um, quote from it. This is talking about the first of the 12 steps from AA. It says this. The first of the 12 steps requires the admission of powerlessness. The addict cannot access sobriety without traveling through that ugly door. In a practical sense, that means that the addict, who is not in a state of despair about their plight, must be made to feel worse than if they are, if, if they are to find a lasting sobriety. 
He goes on to say that because one of the Christian traditions states, a Christian must be crushed by their inability to meet God's demands, i.e. the law, before he will turn to appreciate the gospel. Nicodemus, I pray, walked away from Jesus' discussion saying, if everything that I have done in my life has not merited me access into the kingdom of heaven, I don't think I can do anything more. Maybe I should just look to Christ. There are some of you in this room that have been trying so hard to get to that point when you can say, I have earned this. I now have access to see and to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the, and the last thing you want to admit is the depth of your depravity and that you are a condemned sinner. And to that I would say you're running from the wrong thing. Because in your admitting that you are condemned and a sinner, immediately after what you hear is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever regardless of the sin that you are afraid of admitting to, regardless of the life circumstance you find yourself in, regardless of the prison cell that you have to admit that you reside in, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think for Nicodemus, just to sum up this entire section that we're closing out this morning, he came to see Jesus to fit Jesus into his religious system. He came to hear about new prophecies that could be applied to his well-thought-out traditions. And Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees walked away from Jesus hearing, having heard that salvation is found not in covering up and working more, but in simply acknowledging their inability and looking to Christ. It's that simple. Simply acknowledging your inability to save yourself and looking to Christ. All the Christian traditions, all of the all details that can be added to this thing called church. It's that simple. Admitting I can't do it. I can never be good enough. I can never keep up this facade. And saying I'm going to look to Christ for my salvation. As we turn our attention towards communion this morning. Again, the table stands there as this reminder that it's not our body and our blood that saves us, sanctifies us, covers us. It is Christ. Because we're all condemned. We're all guilty. We are all in that jail cell waiting to die. And yet the communion table looks to us and says, you have hope. Because God sent his son into the world to die for needy sinners. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your love. I dare say we will never understand it. We will always be learning of its depth more and more. But Lord, impress upon all of us, regardless of what we have done, the pursuits that we are in currently, the shame that we carry. There is nothing that can separate us from your love. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that is just struggling with, with the pride of admitting that they are broken and needy, 
Lord, allow the weight of the law to, to rest on their heart so that they will realize that they have no hope and that they are, in fact, in that prison cell that they can't get out of. So that they will look to you. That they will see that you love sinners. That you love the condemned. And that whoever believes can have eternal life. Father, be with us now in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.